0: Before I wanted to be like Christ, I wanted to be like Mike, all right? Um, And by Mike, I mean Michael Jordan. And here's the thing, as a little Iranian kid out in the country, like, I didn't have, like, many kind of straight paths to kind of get to the NBA, much less to our uh, junior high basketball team. Like, I didn't have a lot of inspiration set in front of me kind of thing. And, uh, and as I got older, I realized there's a reason why. Because, like, I think there's been, like, one Iranian who's ever played uh, basketball. And my dad tries to always do this. My dad's Iranian. He's always like, you know, Robin, Iranians start and do the best things in the world. And I'm like, no, they don't. Like, they... They, they they don't get to do all the best and great things like Andre Agassi, greatest tennis player. Like not he's not a Like there's always something for him. You know, like maybe you have somebody in your family that's always like, yeah, like we're related to this kind of high noble kingly person, and you're like, get out of here with that. Like you're you're not telling the truth. So, but as a kid, I would love to watch NBA inside stuff, uh, and then I would run to my wooden backboard. Uh, that my grandfather had built me with the goal on it, and I would try to shoot hoops by myself, uh, and I missed all the time, which there was a lot of exercise chasing down the ball. And um, so because I couldn't do basketball, though like Jordan had like all these shoes come out, right? And so all that being said, I remember in sixth grade, I had a big moment. Um, My mom was like, like Robin, we'll get you some tennis shoes if you want, some sneakers. And I was like, oh wow, this will be great. But I was really conflicted because um, Michael Jordan wasn't a Christian in my mind, right? Like, I was like, oh, he's not a Christian. He probably doesn't speak in tongues, so I can't really say that he's a real Christian. But David Robinson, was a, uh, he was the admiral, uh, admiral. He was a really good Christian. So he had his own line of shoes. So I felt like I had to get David Robinson's shoes. And so I got David Robinson's Reebok pumps. Um, and then the next day, my cousin who lived right beside me showed up in his Jordan 4s and I just, I just crumbled. I melted. I was like, oh, man, Christianity sucks, you know, like this whole appropriation, like co-opting things, that kind of thing. Why can't I just get the Jordan? So all that being said, I live with that misery, but I was always a sneakerhead, but I, and, and then I decided a few years ago, I was like, you know what, I want to enjoy sneakers again. So I always enjoyed the craft and culture of it, and I finally got a pair of Jordan 4s, and I was so excited about it, and so then I got like into like buying and selling and trading and kind of having a whole side hustle because, you know, I'm Middle Eastern, and so, like, that was all really fun, and, um, and then I got a text earlier this week from somebody, and they said this, this Instagram is dragging you and your people, and I checked it out. Now, if you ever heard about this Instagram feed that started in the last week, it's gotten 50,000 people, like, followers in a matter of, like, just a few days, and then I was, like, like, these people, like, yeah, they don't know what they're doing. They just are buying these thousands and thousands of dollars of shoes. They don't care about the crowd. Like, these are horrible people. Don't compare me to them. And, and then I was interacting with another person, a friend, who was wanting to get into sneakers, and then he, he sent this. He's like, I said, here's the other account. This got me so grossed out, I'm close to selling all my shoes. Like, I was upset. And then he goes, dang, brutal. Ye evangelicals. Pretty funny, though, right? <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's pretty funny. And so I was sitting with this and I was thinking about how, um, regardless of how someone would consider sneakers or this culture and the church or the co opting, all this kind of stuff, I got really grateful for it because there's something about critiquing the culture you're in that helps swing culture back when it gets too extreme one way or another. Like, what we want to tend to do is just always swing the pendulum. Like, we see something like this, and we've been waiting for ages on the other side to go, ah, you see, of course, that's all wrong over there. I told you it was just a matter of time. But then that person is blind to their own stuff as well. And you get all these comment sections on here, and people are losing their minds. I'm like, oh, this is like Christ City Church. Like, this is great. I, I get this, you know. Like, no, here's this side. No, here's this side. No, this is how I see it. You know, those kind of things. And I was thinking about, though, How grateful I was at the end of the day to know that as as followers of Christ, as God followers, God is always faithful, even behind the scenes, to make sure that there's enough critique to hold us honest. What does it mean to follow God? And to be willing to engage the culture we're in, even if it means it's going to cost us something, some street cred It's going to cost us a little bit of pride, It's going to humble us a little bit more. And there's something powerful, I think, about the willingness to see the culture that we're all in, because you don't have to be in the sneakers to feel critiqued by this. You could have your own culture you're in, your own way. You see, nobody likes to be called out. If you do, you're lying. Everybody likes to think we're doing it exactly the right way, and we try to, like, cover all of our bases, and everybody else is looking at you going, bro, there's lots of things there. It's just a matter of if you're willing to see it. So none of, us, none of us get it all right. All of us need eyes on our lives. But then, for those of us in that culture, what does it take for us to engage and critique the cultures that we find ourselves in so that we don't find ourselves just kind of rushed up in it, being blind, and finding ourselves looking more like, maybe culture and less like Christ. And I think that simply has to do with courage. Like that's what I want to talk about because when I think about all this, I think about the book of Esther. Now, that was a lot of reading we just did. And I'm now going to try to give you the whole book of Esther in about seven to 10 minutes. And I figure the best way to do that is to show you pictures, right? Because really, you don't want to listen to me talk that long about one thing, so I'm going to show you pictures. Now, here's the thing. As we have that up, just for a second. By the way, this is from the Bible Project. Uh, some great, great people up in the Northwest. I think they're like in Portland uh, out of a church there. And so you can get online and always find great resources with the Bible Project. But um, the book of Esther is, it has four main characters. It has a guy named Mordecai, who's Jewish. His niece, who's also, though, an orphan, her name is Esther, has got a Persian king named Xerxes, right, Persia. And then there's got this um, Canaanite, like he's called an Agadite. but the Agadites were these descendants of Canaanites, which if you know your Bible, you know that Jews and Canaanites don't like each other, right? So you got this Agadite, this Canaanite, named Haman. So you got four main characters. And this happens, this story happens about a hundred years after um, Persia has overcome Babylon. And then the king of Persia has said, everybody who was like in in Babylon can go back to their homeland, but I'll still rule you from a distance. But there's a lot of Jews who decided to stay in Persia in this capital city called Susa. So this is where the story is happening. These four people. Now, with this, and again, this it's kind of it's kind of helpful. There's there's a lot of drinking and a lot of sex happening throughout this book. All right, like this book is just a lot when you're reading it, and a lot of killing. Look really graphic. It'd be a great Quentin Tarantino movie. All right. So it starts off with. Um, Xerxes, and this is a theme, Xerxes is drinking. He's always drinking, okay? And he's having these lavish, he's having this big lavish party, and he decides he wants to show off his wife Vashti to all the other uh, men there who are drinking. And Vashti, being a good feminist, is like, I ain't doing this, all right? Like, you can take that junk and, and go home. So Vashti's like, no, I'm not going to prance around in front of you. I'm not going to let you oogle over me. And so, of course... Um, being a good kind of male chauvinist, right? Like, Xerxes gets upset, and he declares an edict that every man now, when they go home, they have the power to rule their home and call the shots. So it's like they went from, like, this egalitarian thing to not all of a sudden. And, like, uh, uh, he was really, really ticked off about this. So we have that going down. He passes the edict, and then he decides, I'm going to hold a beauty pageant for my next wife. Now, Esther, who is Jewish, decides to enter the beauty pageant, and she wins, and she becomes queen, but he doesn't know that she's Jewish, which really isn't a problem to him at this moment. Now, in the middle of chapter two, we have this guy named Mordecai, and Mordecai overhears two guards planning a coup to assassinate Xerxes. So he then goes to Xerxes and says, I got these two guys. I know what's happening. And Xerxes is really excited, like, thank you so much. And so Xerxes, like, decides, like, Mordecai is my guy. And Mordecai's now got some clout on the street. He's got street cred wherever he goes. Now, in the midst of all this happening, we get to chapter 3. And this is where the story picks up for us. Haman's introduced. And, And Haman has been able to elevate himself to basically the second most powerful person in Persia. Like, Xerxes loves him. They're drinking buddies. They drink a lot together in the book of Esther. Like, they're making all their decisions around this inebriated state, which is never good. So, they're hanging out all the time. He gets elevated to the number two position. And then, he decides that he's going to demand every person he comes in contact with to kneel before him, to kneel before Haman. Well, Mordecai decides he's not gonna do that. And then like some of Haman's cronies find out about it and they're like, hey, Mordecai here is not gonna bow before you. What are you gonna do about that? And Haman's looking into it and he's like, yeah, that's not okay. And he's Jewish, which means now I hate all Jewish people. And so now Haman goes to Xerxes convinces Xerxes to, like, do another edict to pass this law to annihilate all the Jewish people. And the way that he's going to decide the date is the roll of dice. Now, dice are called per, per. Remember that. So we're going to roll dice. And they figure out they're going to roll the dice, and the day lands uh, several months down the road on the 13th day of Adar. All right, you with me? Now, here's the thing. This is where all this tension is building up, and what they do next is they drink and celebrate their decision. Now, we get to chapter 4. Now, remember, this message and what we're trying to talk about here is engaging the culture you're in, seeing the things in your life that you're surrounded by. And culture are narratives. It's the narratives that play in all of our lives here. And willing to look at them, understand them, and have enough courage, enough humility, and enough resolve to engage. So Mordecai is really upset about it, obviously. Like, his death day is coming in just 11 months. And he goes to Esther, who's the queen, and she's been hiding this whole time. Like, whether or not she's proud of being Jewish or not, we don't know. It sounds like there's a bit of vanity in it for Esther, I mean, she had to be incredibly beautiful to be selected in all of the greatest empire in the world as the queen. He goes to her, and, and they're realizing, like, hey, this is not right. Like, this, is, this isn't good. we got to do something about it. And so they start trying to hatch a plan to approach the king, Xerxes, to say, please don't do this. But there's a weird law here. And the law is anyone who approaches the king without being summoned is, like, viable for death now. So you have to be summoned by the golden scepter to come to the king so that the king will then receive you and hear what you have to say. And Esther's like, it's been 30 days since the last time he summoned me. I can't go back. And Mordecai has some very strong words for her. I'm going to read it here again in chapter 4, verse 13. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, listen now, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, and yet you and your family will die. And then I love it how it says in the, in the message, who knows, maybe you were made queen for such a time as this. Maybe you were made queen for such a time as this. Like Esther, maybe the purpose of you being in this position was not to hold this position the rest of your life. Maybe you were put in this position because you like have to engage the things around you that you are the only one who truly could bring the change to all the things that are so wrong in this world. And Esther's having to ponder this decision. We don't get a grasp of whether or not she's this good Jewish person, it doesn't sound like it. Same for Mordecai, it'd be really hard To kind of be a really good Jewish person living in Persia at this time. I mean, like, the Persians were like drinkers and sexers and all these kind of things, right? Not even a word. Probably was in Persia. And then there's the response from Esther Go get all the people together, all the Jewish people, pray for me. I'm gonna pray and fast. And then, like, some of those haunting words in Scripture. And if I perish, I perish. Okay, I'm going to do it. If I perish, I perish. We find in chapter 5 that her plan is twofold. I'm going to throw two big banquets. One to kind of butter up Xerxes, and the other to kind of, like, get in and let him know. So she, she throws this elaborate party Again, lots of drinking. When Haman leaves the party, this is the next day now. When he leaves the party, that early that morning, he's still hungover. He sees Mordecai. And he's so enraged seeing Mordecai, he orders that a huge stake be built and Mordecai be impaled on the stake. Like, man, like, this is the story. And so, like, things are really picking up. Now, what happens going into chapter six is that Xerxes can't go to sleep. And so as you do, when you can't sleep, you read boring things, right? Like nobody's really reading like a horror novel and a thriller when you go to sleep at night. Like you're like, let me like read the Bible. Like let me read something here oh, I can't. Okay, go to sleep now, right? So he calls in one of his servants to read like the royal decrees in history. And in that, Xerxes is read to about and reminded of Mordecai saving his life. And so now Xerxes goes to sleep thinking about Mordecai. When he wakes up the next day, he runs into Haman. Haman's like, "I want Mordecai. I mean, I want Mordecai killed and held at a stake." And 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 uh, Xerxes is like. No, man, matter of fact, I want you to put Mordecai on a royal horse, and I want you, Haman, to walk Mordecai all throughout Susa, and everybody talk and say to Mordecai, Mordecai be praised. So you see, like, the script is getting flipped on Haman here. Like, he's really upset. And then we find, as we finally kind of get into the last part of chapter 7, Esther throws the second party. She, she says, in the, in, while they're drinking again, I'm Jewish. And then she points at Haman and says that he has an evil plan to not just, like, subdue the Jewish people, but to kill them all. And so then Xerxes takes Haman out to the same stake that he had built for Mordecai and has Haman impaled on the stake. <laughs> Bedtime stories, right? And then we find that, um, that Esther and Mordecai come And they try to give a new plan in chapter 8 to the king. And the king lets them know, like, I can't undo a decree. I don't even have that power. But there could be a new decree that on the 13th of Adar, every Jewish person can now defend themselves. And so we find that a few things happen to end this book. We find that the Jewish people do defend themselves on that day. It took them two days. It's called Purim. It happens on March 20th and 21st, which is the first day of spring in the Middle East. It's a really big day. It's just like the fresh start that God, like, is on our side here. Mordecai is exalted, and the story ends. And there's a few things I think are interesting, like, like, consider this, consider this, like, Mordecai and Esther are not more exemplars for us. These aren't people you look at and go, do it like them. The writer here who's anonymous isn't trying to venerate Esther and go, she's a model of morality. What an amazing person. Same for Mordecai. That's not what they're trying to do. What the writer's trying to say is anyone at any time can be used anywhere when there is a loss of hope, if you're just willing to engage the things around you. Anyone, anytime, anywhere can be used in the midst of any circumstance when there's a lack of hope. And it's really interesting. There's three parts here I just think are, I think are fun for us to consider. One is this. God is never mentioned in this book. This is like the only book we have in Scripture where God is not mentioned. Now that's a big story I just told you. That's a lot that's happening here. Think about it. God's not mentioned one time. And yet, The second thing that's interesting is God was at work behind the scenes of human activity. Like God didn't have to be mentioned for God to be present. Like God didn't have to be explained, God-splained to the world, for God to be active in the midst of all things happening in the world. Which then leads us to the third thing. It takes someone to be willing to engage the narratives of their time and call them out then. We can't wait for God to show up. God's already there. The book is saying, will humans be willing to engage the stories of their time to change the narratives? Or do humans just try to, like, peace out and go, well, God's so sovereign, God's so big, and I'll just step back because that's my linus blanket, and I don't want to have to deal with things that are hard. It's a challenging book. Now, we've been, through a, we've been doing a series called The Eight Practices where we're trying to talk about these eight rhythms that are really important to us that make us up as a church. And I'll tell you, of all the messages, like, Engage Culture is my jam. I love talking about this. I have an anger and a passion for culture, not always to even have to change it, but just to interact with it. Like, I love this world. I love interacting with it. I love trying to find the stories that are happening around me. And you might be surprised by this. Like, this is why, even why I mentioned the, the Instagram account up front. Even if it calls me out, I don't like that. But ultimately, I love that. Because there's something about, like, having not necessarily criticism, but critique to go, hey, what's happening here? What's going on? What are the things we're mindlessly following? Simply because we're comfortable with it or because we're too afraid to have to engage it. There's a, there's a famous book by a guy named Richard Niebuhr, a um, great theologian in the 20th century. It's called Christ in Culture, Christ in Culture. And in this book, he outlines about five ways that we engage culture. Now, this is kind of nerdy, but I think you might like it, at least some of you will, and you can even see on the screen. He has five ways he talks about that for us, as followers of Christ, it's important for us then to engage culture. The the first one is what he calls um, Christ against culture. Christ against culture. This is basically anyone who looks at things around this world and go, I want to get away from it. I want to isolate myself. I don't want to interact with anything of this world. Um, and it's not, again, when I say these things, like some of you are going, yeah, that's wrong. Yeah, that's whatever. Just Just bear with me before you cast your judgment. So, like, We know that in Mennonite communities and other communities around the world, there's a very separate way of living to not be infiltrated by the world around them because too many bad things can happen to you. And so Christ against culture. The culture is wrong. The things that this world has are wrong. Don't do them. Isolate yourself from government, from any kind of issue happening around you. Just look away. The second one is what they would call Christ of culture, and this is the exact opposite of Christ against culture. Christ in culture is looking at the things happening in your world and blessing them, saying this is a part of God's rhythm. This is a part of God's movement, right? And it's realizing that if it brings more and more freedom to people, then it's worth doing. So, for example, like the movement of feminism in the 50s and 60s and hitting the culmination in the 70s. Like, this was something the church had to look at and either try to get away from or bless and go, hey, this isn't about, like, trying to shrink down men. This really just could be about elevating women beside men. And it was causing, though, a lot of tension. So Christ in culture, seeing those things and blessing them. The third way that Niebuhr talks about is Christ above culture. This is for anyone who loves apologetics like they love wrestling with and hammering out and not even necessarily psychoanalyzing, but philosophizing over all the things happening in the world and trying to come up with a higher answer to all things where they all can work because that's what Christ supposedly offers us. The fourth one is Christ and culture in paradox. Christ and culture in paradox that we live dualistically, that we're in two worlds at once. God's world, our world. And that we're always trying to bring those two together, interact with those two, or even being stretched by Gumby, like Gumby. And the last one is this. Christ, the transformer of culture. Which this is very much um, conversionist approaches, right? Um, This one probably aligns most closely to what we've seen in evangelical culture, especially over the last like 70 so years. Like we kind of go into countries and, and try to bring conversion, and, and, and take all the things. This is what happened with uh, contemporary Christian music, right, in the 90s. It takes all these things and says, nope, we're going to convert it to uh, uh, Jesus freak, right? Like, that was, that was it. Now, just looking at this for a second. Where are you? Do you see where you are up there? Do you see which one you tend to go to the most? Do you see which one you tend to say, no, this is my hammer, and all of life, they're just nails, and this is the exact way it has to be done. If I were to give each of us, like, A, B, C, D, or E choice, which one would it be? I think our tendency is to say that one of these has to be it, but the reality is there's F, like all the above, because if we follow Jesus long enough, all these things are important. Listen. There are some things worth separating from in this world. Some things to say, nope, I'm not going to interact with that. There's some things to bless in this world. There's some things to have to engage in a higher, like, enlightened place and argue out in apologetics. There's some things that we're just having to wrestle between one or the other and see if we can bring them together. And there's sometimes we just need to transform the things in front of us. All of these are tools in our tool bag to engage culture. But what happens for a lot of us, we tend to go to one and kind of stay there. And therefore, like, we end up being kind of dull in our ability to interact with the world around us and the cultures that we find ourselves in. And I think what's really important from this is that cultural engagement, ultimately, if you think about this, It's just a lot, I know, but we think about this, and think about Esther, I think it's two things that are important for us. One is this, it's a willingness to see narratives, even the ones that you perpetuate. What are the stories of culture that we look at, that the world looks at and goes, this isn't okay, that somehow you're still a part of? What we want to do first is look at the stories around us that we're not a part of and critique those. Church is great at that. But what if you start with the story that you're a part of and critique that first? The second thing I think is interesting is that it's going to take courage to engage, even if it means a loss. And trust me, there is a loss. Dr. King, we just celebrated. 51st year since his assassination this past week on the 4th. And a great word for us here it's in your bulletin. Courage is an inner resolution to go forward despite obstacles. Cowardice is submissive surrender to circumstances. Courage breeds creativity. Cowardice represses fear and is mastered by it. Cowardice asks the question is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscious asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when we must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but one must take it because it is right. Even in our own world, our own culture. I think... I think that we have a pretty muffled, almost mute voice outside of this space. That's what I think. I think about, like, even with that that Instagram account, it's Christians. No one else cares except those who want to come in and talk about, ultimately, you see, Christians, you're just fakes. Like, the world isn't interested in things we have to say until we actually have things that we're doing for the world. And it first wants to know, are we willing to engage our own blemishes and flaws? Like, how is it that we have a Me Too movement and a hashtag Church Too movement and, and like, we just want to turn a blind eye? How is it we have this many horrible things, things that this church knows too well, happening in church, and we'd rather run to, well, like, that's about them, or it's just kind of immorality, or God's got it? No! If we're meant to have a voice and change the world around us to some degree to to be able to like bring Christ, we have to be willing to engage our own stuff first. And so the world could care less about I stand beside this victim or this victim until we stand beside victims inside this room. Like we we are impotent of what we could do in this world because we don't want to see what we're doing here and what we perpetuate, which makes the critique of God so interesting. You see, the first people to critique culture, that's what makes the Bible so interesting, were prophets, and they were critiquing their own people. They were critiquing it from the inside out, not the outside in. They didn't spend their time critiquing Babylon and everybody else as much as they did critiquing the ways that they weren't even following God. So the prophets poke holes from the inside. And then God could have stayed up in the heavens, and God decides to come down in the flesh. And in the flesh becomes like one of us as humans. Not just a human, but he also is Jewish. Not just Jewish, but he's also a rabbi religious leader. That's who Jesus was, a rabbi religious leader. So when Jesus is critiquing the Pharisees. He's critiquing a system that he's in. He sees it. He's engaging it. He doesn't start with critiquing Rome and everyone else. He starts with his own people. And then it builds out from there. So we have a God who shows up, and he comes in the flesh, critiques the flesh, and then his ultimate like coup de grace of really showing the world that he's serious about all these things is, he surrenders his life. He comes down in the flesh, he critiques in the flesh, and then he decides to not win in the flesh, but surrenders. That's what's inspiring. Like, the staying power of Jesus for 2,000 years, is that right there. It's that God would come down, first critique everything that, he's a part of, and then give up his life. And I feel like for us, it's just really hard to do. Because I think it costs a lot. I know it costs me a lot. It means I have to see more things than I want to see. I'd rather just kind of just get away, give a lot of people who are just really homogenous like me, that like can't stand up and say things to me, and then we kind of move on. I am surrounded in my world by people who call me out regularly. I hate it. (laughs) My wife does it. The elders do it. Like, everybody does it. Everybody's like, no, Robin. I'm like, God, just leave me alone. Like, I'm a good person, you know? (laughs) Everybody's got a critique. And here's the thing. I won't hear a critique from somebody who I'm not, like, riding or dying with. You know what I mean? I don't care about those critiques. There are plenty of people in the city who have tried to give me critiques. I don't care about that. But I care about critiques inside here. Because these are, like, my people. This is my family. So I want to hear from my family. And so we start, like, poking holes because it's family. And, like, that's what families need to do. But then you start knowing that it's coming from a place that, like, I just want your life to be better. And I'm like, I want your life to be better. And the more we do that, that's what allows the world from the outside looking in to trust. But when we spend all of our time trying to go out and transform culture or change culture or get away from culture without dealing with our own culture, and we have in the book of Esther a woman, a woman who stands up and confronts the culture of her day, the narratives of our time. And what does she have to say? If I perish, I perish. It sounds kind of like Jesus. I'm going to come down. I'm going to do this. If I perish, I perish. So what's the courage that you need and that I need? What would it look like for us to engage the narratives that we all live in? And this isn't a message about trying to get down the nitty-gritty, but I will say, until we're addressing the things like the church too, The things like the blatant and obvious like bigotry and racism and xenophobia in our churches. Until we address those things, people don't care what we have. But here's the beautiful thing. When we do, people get interested. And you find that you're having to propagate something or like convert others a lot less because they're just kind of wanting in on what's happening in your life? Could we be that kind of church? I think we're heading there. I think in many ways that we are that. But I think that's something we always have to keep working at. So here's your application. Here's what I'd say to you. What would it look like for you to open yourself up to critique in your own life first? To ask someone around you, hey, and by the way, it's the worst question in the world. I hate it. I still ask it. This is it. It's you saying this to another person. What's it like for you to be with me? Horrible question. Like, don't do it if you don't want to, but you probably need to do it. Like, what's it like for you to be with me? And then listen. And then for us to look at our own context here and go, what's happening here first? What are things we keep trying to set up and go, yeah, we're Christ-like, but really we're devoid of Christ? And then what would it mean for us in turn then to do those things together and be able to have this approach? If we perish, we perish. And here's why we can say that. Because just like they had a God that wasn't mentioned but still behind every human activity, we have a God who's behind us, this table. We have a God who's behind all human activity and a God that's shown that I'm willing to perish so that you can live. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we have in you a more wonderful, true, beautiful example of one who would come... And make his home with us, as Jeremiah talks about in 29, to seek the prosperity, the shalom, to give up his own life. Jesus, we look to you. And because you're willing to engage this world, this culture, that allows us to maybe find some courage to do that ourselves. And so I pray now as we come before your table, we'll be reminded once more of a God who comes to us in our inability to ever get to him, and that changes everything. In your name we pray, amen.